Matthew Henry says concerning Deuteronomy 13, Moses is still upon that necessary subject concerning the peril of idolatry. In the close of the foregoing chapter, he had cautioned them against the peril that might arise from their predecessors, the Canaanites. In this chapter, he cautions them against the rise of idolatry from among themselves. They must take heed lest any should draw them to idolatry. Now just a note here, the chapter preceding this, chapter 12, concerns the idolatry of worshiping falsely, second commandment idolatry. This chapter concerns first commandment idolatry, the worshiping of improper objects. Two are closely related but distinct. Hear now the reading of the word of Almighty God, Deuteronomy 13, starting at verse 1. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Ye shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. And that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he hath spoken to you to turn you away from the Lord your God which brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of bondage to thrust thee out of the way which the Lord thy God commanded thee to walk in. So shalt thou put the evil away from the midst of thee. If thy brother the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend which is as thine own soul entice thee secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, namely of the gods of the people which are round about you, nigh unto thee, or far off from thee, from the one end of the earth, even unto the other end of the earth, thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, neither shall thine eye pity him, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him. But thou shalt surely kill him. Thine hand shall be first upon him, to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. And thou shalt stone him with stones, that he die because he hath sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And all Israel shall hear and fear and shall do no more any such wickedness as this is among you. If thou shalt hear say in one of thy cities, which the Lord thy God hath given thee to dwell there, saying, Certain men... The children of Belial are gone out from among you and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which ye have not known. Then shalt thou inquire 
and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be truth and the thing certain that such abomination is wrought among you, thou shalt surely smite the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, destroying it utterly and all that is therein and the cattle thereof with the edge of the sword. And thou shalt gather all the spoil of it into the midst of the street thereof and shalt burn with fire the city and all the spoil thereof every whit for the Lord thy God. And it shall be in heap forever. It shall not be built again. And there shall cleave not of the cursed thing to thine hand that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show thee mercy and have compassion upon thee and multiply thee as he hath sworn unto thy fathers when thou shalt hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God to keep all his commandments, which I command thee this day, to do that which is right in the eyes of the Lord thy God. Thus far the reading of the word of Almighty God from Deuteronomy chapter 13. A few thoughts on this very powerful passage. Verses 1 through 5, we have the seduction to first commandment idolatry by false prophets and lying wonders and the appropriate or suitable punishment by the civil magistrate. Notice first here in verse 1, if there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams. This is a common figure of speech in the Bible where it refers to false prophets as prophets. It's, it's called an ad hominem, where you speak according to their opinion of themselves. They are prophets, but they are false prophets. It doesn't say that, but it's obvious from the context. He brings a sign or a wonder, and this brings the people to say, oh, this must be a true prophet. He said this sign would occur. The sign occurred. He must be from God. I should listen to him. No. This actually comes to pass what he says, but that's not the test of a true prophet. A true prophet is not known by wonders and signs. He's known primarily by words. What does he say? And in this case, even though he's doing these great wonders and signs, he says something that is not the word of a true prophet from God. Let us go after other gods. That's what he says. That is the tendency of his doctrine. He's not going to come out right out and say this. But the Bible often identifies the true intention of falsehood rather than the professed intention. The professed intention might be, well... You know, the word of God is obscure. We can't really know for sure whether we should do this or that. God's given us a little bit of freedom here. Where the scriptures are clear, no, he hasn't. But the false prophet seduces with fair speeches, Paul says. He draws aside the simple. God says, don't listen to him. I note then that Satan has power to work signs and wonders, doesn't he? Satan has power to seduce people from God and his agents, his ministers, can do signs and wonders. They can have statues that cry tears and they can have visions delivered to them by supposed angels that they ought to build a shrine to the Virgin Mary, for example. Are these real? Perhaps in some cases, no. 
perhaps in others, yes, they are lying signs and wonders to seduce you away from the true God, to give credence to a false God which pretends to be the true God. Satan can work signs and wonders. Let us then be on our watch. Scripture is the yardstick, the tape measure. Scripture is the mark that says, is this a true prophet or a false prophet or in our times a true teacher. That's what Peter says. As there were false prophets in those days, so there will be false teachers in your day. For the Lord your God proveth you, he says in verse 3. Why did the false prophet come? Is it outside of the control of God? Is he scratching his head, trying to figure out, can I use this somehow? No. God has a purpose. That purpose is to test you, he says. 1 Corinthians 11.19 says, There must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. God doesn't get surprised by false teachers or false prophets or heresies. God is testing his people to see, will you cleave fast to me or will you be seduced? Those that are approved will cleave fast to God. Those that are hated by him will fall into the ditch. Notice here, God says, how is it that you pass the test? You shall walk, he says, after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. Now this series of commandments and requirements are all related to each other. In some ways, they're actually what we call synonyms. They're talking about the same exact thing in different ways. Now, there are areas where they differ from each other. So let's discuss this. Walking, not after the counsel of the ungodly, but after God's counsels, meditating on his law day and night. That's the idea of walking and doing what he says. He says to fear him, to show respect for him, to show awe and reverence. And then he says to keep his commandments. That is, you treasure them up, you look after and watch so that they're not violated. That's the idea of keeping something, as you would keep a treasure. And then obey, he says, his voice. God's voice, the oracles of God, written down in Scripture, that's where God speaks to us. He says, obey those things that I have written down through my servant Moses. Keep my commandments. Treasure them as a great treasure. Respect me and do what I say. You can't fear God and not keep his commandments. You can't say, well, I'm going to obey his voice, but the Bible's not that important. Rather, I listen to the tradition of the fathers handed down from ages by God. That is not obeying his voice. That is not keeping his commandments. That's not fearing him. So God joins these up together so that we may know if you actually want to have a personal relationship with God, as they say, then you must have a scriptural relationship with God. You must obey his voice. Then he says, you shall serve him and cleave unto him. Now this word uh, serve means to be a slave of someone. Oved. It's the Obed-Edom, if you've ever heard that name, it means the slave of Edom. Obed-Yahweh, Obadiah is the slave of Yahweh, the slave of Jehovah. Here he says, you shall obey me, you shall serve me, you shall be my slaves. 
And then he uses this word that we saw in Genesis 2. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall do what? Cleave unto his wife. Hold her fast. Don't let her go. Stay with her. Dwell with her. Have new loyalties. Have new affections. Have a new household. Same with God. Cleave unto him. Hold fast to God. Stay close to God. Have new loyalties that put God first. That's what he's saying when he says cleave unto him. And then notice verse 5. And that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. This is an order. It's not optional. He shall be put to death. Now, you might ask yourself, what does this have to do with Gentile nations? We have the separation of church and state. We have the freedom of conscience and toleration of religion. How can you say that a false prophet who seduces from the true God should be put to death? Well, let me ask you a question. Why does civil government exist? What does the Apostle Paul say in Romans 13 is the purpose of civil government? He says that God has ordained these powers to punish those with the sword of execution, makairos, it's a butcher's sword. He says God gave them the sword, the makairos, so that they would put to death those that do evil. Okay? Is it evil to seduce from the true God? Yes, you better bet it is. It is of the first order of evils. And therefore, if civil government is to punish those who murder the souls of others, is no wicked thing. Rather, it is a godly thing. False prophets and false teachers do much evil. And the privileges that God cites as to why they should put these false prophets to death, he says, because I delivered you out of the land of Egypt. I commanded you to walk in my ways. Well, let me ask you a question. Do we have a redemption on an equal value, a lesser value, or a greater value from their redemption? Well, to ask the question is to answer it. Our redemption, our privileges, our light are greater than theirs. So if someone says, go away from the true God, is their evil greater or lesser than the evil of this false prophet? It is greater. It is much greater. Why put him to death? Because he hath spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God. Not because he thinks in his mind that you should be turned away from the Lord your God, but because he says that you should. And words can be testified to in a court of law. They can be brought in as evidence. I heard him say this. He said that. And you have multiple witnesses who can say he has done this thing. So even the false prophet has his day in court. He's convicted by testimonies and condemned by the judge, as the Geneva notes say. That's the Pilgrim Bible. You see the little statue of a pilgrim holding a Bible? That's the Geneva Bible. Those are the notes there. The first war that they fought was against an idolater who seduced an Englishman who seduced the Indians to worship their false gods and made a statue for them. That was the first war that the pilgrims had. So much for freedom of religion. And then notice verse 5. What is the good result from this? Then he says, Thou shalt put away the evil from the midst of thee. This is the peaceable fruit of righteousness. 
The wicked have persuaded Christians to reject this idea. Oh, well, if you punish people, that won't stop others from doing it. Oh, yes, it will. Anything that gets punished or restrained, you get less of. Anything that gets approved of or praised, you get more of. That's how it works. That's why he says to praise the good, Romans 13, and to punish them that do evil. Do you know if someone is put to death for a crime, what is the rate at which they recommit those crimes? Any guesses? Is it pretty high? Zero. Zero is the percent of what we call recidivism. If you put the person to death, guess what? They never do it again. And everybody else says, ooh, that's what happens? And you're serious about You're actually going to do something about this? Parents who threaten their children and do nothing about it, what do their children say? You don't mean that. Parents who threaten their children and do something about it, what do their children say? Oh, I better not do that. You can tell by the conduct of their children whether they follow through on their threats. Civil government then exists to punish crimes against the Ten Commandments. This is one of the Ten Commandments. When God gave the Jews this law, he didn't address them as a unique people. He addressed them as men created in the image of God with a law written on their heart and says, I want you to punish in this way. Our divines have a rule in interpreting the Bible. It is this. The reason for a statute determines the length with which it lasts. An immutable principle that underlies a commandment means that that commandment goes on immutably. It cannot change. If there's a reason that's immutable, the law is immutable. Is the reason for the statute immutable? Yes. Is the statute therefore immutable? Yes. And therefore let us pray and let us work toward the lawful exercise of civil power to restrain the evil, to praise the good. And each of us in our places, in our stations, in our callings, let us seek to suppress, to discourage, to discountenance and punish evil with the means God put at our disposal. We're not all civil magistrates. None of us here are. But if you ever get in a position of civil government, it better be on this foundation that we will punish and restrain those who violate God's commandments, the Ten Commandments. This one in particular as a primary starting point. Let us start by rooting out the sins and wickedness and the little false prophet in our hearts that teaches us lies. Then notice verses 6 through 11. We have the seduction to first commandment idolatry by friends and family. Here's the friends and family package. They come to you to seduce you and you love them. You have a natural affection. You have a friendly relation. But God has other plans. If thy brother, he says, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul, the dearest human relations you have, God says, they come to you, and they seek to seduce you and draw you away. Verse 8, thou shalt not consent, hearken, Pity, spare, or conceal, he says. Rapid fire commandments, which you should not do. Why does he say this? Because this is what we would tend to do. Oh, 
I just, I should go along with this person. It's really going to damage my relationship if I draw a hard line here and say, no, this far and no further. Well, they're not really going to like me. I might lose my friend. My wife, she might despise me. My husband, he might think ill of me. My parents, what if I don't go along with this? What am I going to do? I shall consent. That's what I'll do. Well, at least let me hear them out. Let me hearken to them. Oh, that poor deluded soul. Poor him. I can't turn him into the government. Ah, we ought to let this one slip by. He's a good friend of the family. Spare him. I'm not going to tell anybody about it. It'll be our little secret. I'll conceal him. God searches out all the devices that our wretched and miserable wicked hearts come up with in order to make who our God? The wife. She's going to be your God. Your son's going to be your God. Your daughter's going to be your God. Your friend who's as your own soul. You're going to make them your God and not me. And God will not have competition, he says. He won't let you say, oh, I'll spare him just this once. Do you know Jesus taught the same thing? He said you must hate your father or your mother. If you would be his disciple, you must hate your own self, he says. This doctrine then, the first table of the law is not obeyed for the sake of the second. Many people make this the case by their actions. They don't say this, of course, but this is what they do. We will obey God insofar as men are pleased with it. As soon as men are displeased with obeying God, we will not obey him any longer. That means that you obey the first table of the law for the sake of the second human relations, right? That's what the second table is all about, what we owe to our neighbor. So people are saying, man is my God. I will obey him first and God, you can have a back seat. If it's convenient in the second table of the law, I will follow you. God says the opposite. You obey the second table of the law for the sake of the first. All human or creaturely considerations are subordinated to the interests of God. This is what it means to cleave to him. This is why he said this. Cleave, hold fast. Just as a man leaves his father or his mother and he cleaves unto his wife, so God says, this is how you cleave to me. You prioritize my things my commandments, my interests, my kingdom, my glory. Let us then subordinate all mere human considerations. Are you an agreeable person? That's good. But you must not be agreeable to evil that violates God's commandments. Do you like to listen to your friends? Well, that's good, isn't it? But must you listen to falsehood and error that seduces you from the true God? You must not. Is it good to have compassion, to be moved with pity for those who suffer? Yes, it is. Except when they seek to seduce you from the true God, then he says, do not pity them. I said, punish them with death. I said, put them to death. Don't pity them. Surely, he says, thou shalt kill him. Literally, killing, you shall kill him. Most certainly you will kill him. Most definitely, no room for wavering, God says. You will kill him. 
Now notice, it's in the presence of others. This isn't a private killing that he's talking about. He's talking about a person has witnesses. No one shall be put to death except at the mouth of two or three witnesses. There has to be a trial. He has a right to be heard. He has a right to make a defense. But if he's found guilty, you, the first witness, he says, your hand will be first upon him. Then the rest of the congregation, you must stand with me, he says. Why? Because he has sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God. He attempted to murder your soul. He attempted to murder and take you down to hell with the devil and with him. He set himself up and said, it's either me or God, which is it? And God says, side with me. Don't side with him. Then we have in verses 12 through 18, the seduction to first commandment idolatry by an entire city and its Punishments. Notice in one of thy cities, verse 12, not your friend, not your wife, nothing like that. Now it's a whole city. And notice the Lord, he says, thy God hath given thee. This word means nathan. It means to graciously give something by a testament or a gift. God in his mercy, his grace, you're now provoking God by taking the city he graciously gave to you and turning it into a house of idols. And who seduces to this? The children of Belial, he says. This is a very interesting word. The word beli means without and ya'al means a yoke. Like an animal gets a yoke on them. Or it can mean profit because when you have a yoke of oxen, you profit from your work in the ground. They work for you. They cause fruit and productivity and prosperity. A son of Belial, in other words, is one who will not bear the yoke of God. He will not submit to law. He will not come under order. He will not profit or do any good. He is a worthless person. Matthew Henry says, Men that would endure no yoke, that neither fear God nor regard man, but shake off all restraint of law and conscience, and are perfectly lost to all manner of virtue. Those are the children of Belial. Let us go and serve other gods, they say, verse 13. Do you remember Jeremiah 2? He says, go over to the tents of Kedar, go over to the isles of the Greeks in Chittim. Ask them, have you guys forsaken your gods? And they'll laugh you to scorn. No, we don't forsake our gods, we honor our gods. And yet Jeremiah says, the Lord through Jeremiah, you people have forsaken the true God. They have their false gods. They won't give them up. You can't prize their idols out of their hands. And yet you forsake a fountain of living waters. You hew out cisterns for yourselves that are broken, that can't even hold water. When you had the fountain of living water, why did you need a cistern? So they say, let us go. And serve other gods. This is no small evil. But notice God in his patience, in his justice, verse 14. Then shalt thou inquire and make search and ask diligently. This is the right of the guilty or the accused, right? We have to search it out. We have to figure out, is this person actually guilty of the crime? Is this city actually guilty of going with the children of Belial? Are they unrepentant about it? Do they refuse to turn from it? Because if so, there are serious consequences. 
So you must establish judgment on solid facts with a diligent inquiry. But then, he says, verse 15, Thou shalt surely smite the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword. The sin tolerated is the sin contracted. They've put up with the sin. They are guilty of the sin. They have not condemned it. Do you think that God would have the people put to death if they actually condemned it and said, no, we won't stand with this? Of course not. In fact, Sodom and Gomorrah, you see the same thing. Will you spare it for this number? How about for this number? How about for this number? God is a merciful God. But here he says, these people are all on board. They all approve, and they must therefore all die. If a civil body winks at or connives at, pretends like it's no big deal, turns a blind eye to it, such an abominable sin, the whole nation contracts the guilt of that sin. This is why we're having a fast day. Our nation is guilty of this and other sins against the Lord. And therefore, guess who's guilty? We all are. We are all deserving of God's wrath. If our shelves are bare and empty, if our lights turn off, if we're invaded by foreign enemies, if the fire of God comes down from the sky, we're just getting what we deserve. Because we are wicked. We are evil. And we tolerate this wickedness. Why do you think God's judging us? Because we're wicked, because we're ungodly, and because we as corporate bodies, whether the Commonwealth of Virginia, our county of Augusta or Rockingham or Page or wherever we live or the whole United States, we accept this filth. We accept this trash. God says, do not accept it. Do not tolerate it. Burn with fire the city and all the spoil thereof, every whit for the Lord thy God. Do this unto me, he says. You don't do it so that you get something out of the deal. You don't get the gold. You don't get the silver. You don't get the houses. You don't get the animals. You don't get the slaves. You get nothing but the glory of Almighty God. Let us then, in all that we do... Do it as unto the Lord, whether in what we say or in what we do. Let us live for His glory. Ask ourselves when you're beginning to undertake a thing, do a thing, speak a word, does this please and glorify my Savior? Not, what can I get out of this? How does this advance my interests? Will this lie help me to get by? Well, is the lie pleasing to God? No. Then you do not say it. But we think, oh, what can I get out of this? You know, if we accuse that city, they're a very wealthy city. If we accuse them of seducing from the true God, look at all the spoils we get. Houses, barns, gold, silver. God says, no, you don't get anything out of the deal. Everything gets burned unto me. All the spoil destroyed. You do it for my sake. Burn it as a heap unto me. We should think in the same way. Deny ourselves. Take up our cross. Don't fall upon the prey. Serve the Lord and be holy unto him. There shall cleave not of the cursed thing to thine hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show thee mercy and have compassion upon me. Oh, well, it just kind of clung to my hand. What could I do? It just spoils were there and... Here I have it. Who knows how I got this? Don't make excuses, in other words. 
Even if you say, well, it just kind of stuck to my hand. He said, no, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want your excuses. Destroy all the monuments to idolatry, and I will bless you because you deserve it. No. He says, I will show thee mercy. I will have compassion. I will forgive your sins. I will not reward you for your wickedness. I'll rather forgive your sins and bless you. God's mercy in this. And thus far the explanation of Deuteronomy chapter 13.